Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy or making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to incorporate project-based learning into your teaching to support, among many amazing things, the social-emotional development of your students. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Mike Cackley. Education has so many acronyms. There are some that seem to be universal, like IEP and ELL, and then those that are specific to districts, if not schools themselves. Two acronyms that I couldn't have recognized 10 years ago, but are everywhere now, are SEL, Social Emotional Learning, and PBL, Project-Based Learning. My guest, Mike Cackley, spends his days wrangling these big concepts into amazing opportunities for students to learn and grow. In fact, our interview is full of fantastic examples of a variety of projects, as well as guidance on how to make this work in the classroom. However, before we begin, there is an acronym that I want to define that may be unfamiliar to international listeners. ICE, or Immigration and Customs Enforcement, is the American agency that, as will soon be referenced, conducts raids to find and deport undocumented immigrants. In order to find out more about all of these acronyms, you can follow the link in the show notes to this episode's page on LessonImpossible.com, where you can also find further information, links to other concepts and resources mentioned, and ways to connect with Mike on social media. Good luck on your not-so-impossible lesson with Agent Mike Cackley. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the Lesson Impossible podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, I was wondering if you could start us off by introducing yourself, who you are, what you do in education. My name is Mike Cackley, and I'm currently a social-emotional learning and project-based learning consultant working with teachers on how to implement both those things seamlessly into their classroom. Awesome. And how did you get into the field of education? Well, growing up, my mother was a first grade teacher, and one of the things I knew for sure I never wanted to be was a teacher. <laughs> so I did not choose that path originally, and I ended up getting a degree in missions, actually, and I spent some time teaching English in China. And from there, I really enjoyed teaching. When I came back to the United States, I kind of had that uh, grown-up moment where I had to decide what I was going to do with my life, and I decided to go back to school and got certified to teach in history and math. And then now your focus is on social emotional learning and project-based learning. When did that shift in your practice happen? Uh, I think that, I think those frameworks were always there as far as being a philosophy because that's what the PBL really is a framework and a philosophy and I always believed in hands-on learning. And I my second job, my first job I was only for a year and I got laid off as a history teacher. And then I taught middle school technology for seven years. And I was the only teacher really in the district that didn't have a curriculum and just had a mandate of what I was to do, but I kind of had freedom to do whatever I wanted to. So I was using a project-based philosophy, if not professionally trained in it. And that's really, and then 
SEL is really to me about being kid centered and in holistic teaching. So those were always kind of my beliefs and frameworks. And then I really wanted to move into the core classroom out of an elective class. And they started a new tech network school in our county. And that's a PBL school. And that's when I got formal training and started teaching uh, history with math. I mean, history with English. Just to maybe back up a little bit, because I, I think that definitions are important when we're talking about these educational terms that get thrown around a lot. Um, how would you define PBL specifically? Well, in six words, I would say less of us, more of them. <laughs> That's my short definition. It's really just a framework for putting learning in the hands of the students. And it should be based in authentic contexts in the community and it should be kids doing authentic work. I don't believe that we need to prepare kids for the future. I believe they can do real important work right now. And we see evidence of that all over the world with kids leading movements against climate change and kids just using their voice in all kinds of ways. And so I think taking the content we need to teach and giving kids a reason to learn it instead of just it's on the test. I can see how SEL fits seamlessly into that because when you put the focus onto the kids, then their development, which is happening concurrently to everything that they're doing, becomes more centered. But do you also take a very um, skill-based approach within that? Like, do you focus on it separately or does it just kind of come together? Now, the research shows that SEL, there's a lot of schools thinking about this right now, especially with the trauma of COVID and the shutdown and everything. But the research shows that SEL needs to be integrated into the daily work. And I use the CASEL competencies as a framework. There's five of them. There's self-awareness, social awareness, responsible decision-making, self-management, and relationship skills. And if you are a traditional teacher who lectures, kids takes notes, and then regurgitate it back to you on a test – there's really not much room to develop any of those skills because of the situation they're in. Kids are just mindlessly sitting there. In project-based learning, because they're active, because they're doing the work, they're working with classmates, they're working with the community, they have opportunities to develop all these skills. And anyone who's taught knows that most kids lack some of these skills but if we, it's just like our content. If we want to develop them, we have to give them opportunities to – we have to teach it and we have to let them practice it and develop it. And they're going to make mistakes, but it's okay. Which seems like a, a good time to maybe ask you to guide us through a unit or a lesson that you think really embodies the, the, these concepts that you're bringing together. Do you have one in mind? Oh, that's the hardest question because I have many in mind. I have to pick one. <laughs> well, we've got lots of time and I can do a lot of editing. So as many as you want to share would be great. <laughs> all right. I'm going to, I'm going to share, first of all, a project from another teacher, if that's okay. Absolutely. I don't think we do enough of that. So I have someone that I worked with in, in a workshop and she's teaches in Farmington, New Mexico. Her name's Rebecca Lovelace and she's a U.S. history teacher in a predominantly Native American and Hispanic school setting. And one day, a bunch of her kids came to class, and they were very upset. 
because of an ICE raid that had either taken family and friend members or forced others into hiding. And so there was definitely trauma involved here of a serious nature. And so she decided to do a project on immigration. And she didn't really control the project. The students did. And so they brainstormed. They decided they wanted to have a panel of people from both sides of the issue to discuss it. And so they started contacting people in the community. The first person they locked down was the mayor. And they got him to commit to a date. And they got the, the sheriff, the chiefs of police. And then they had some immigration rights activists come. And they had some couple of women come who were actually arrested by ICE. And they had an open conversation. And the students organized it all. She, she hooked them up with things they needed. She hooked up an MC with a community partner with a local DJ who taught her how to MC. So they're learning some of these skill sets, but advocating for themselves. And they, everyone had to be admitted officially. There was a checklist to make sure that no one got in that would put anyone in danger there, particularly from ICE. And they had this really open conversation. And one of the things that came out in this conversation is that the sheriff had been giving free use of one of their rooms at the police station to ICE. And the mayor didn't even know that. And so afterwards, they realized that they needed more open communication. They wanted to do more of these with the community just to build up relationships between the two. And one of her students who actually didn't show up because they were too scared of ICE afterwards said to her, you know, thank God for you. We need someone to care about us. And so that's that's the kind of project that I just love because kids are doing real work. And they're educating the adults in their community, and they're advocating for themselves and their families. You're preaching to the choir here, but I can hear the the voice of the sticklers in my ear saying, well, that's all well and good, but what did the kids actually learn that's on the curriculum? Um, And so how do you deal with that criticism for a project like that? Well, any project should have multiple learning targets and one or two of the learning targets are going to be social emotional learning skills that you want the kids to teach. You're going to teach them and you want them to practice and develop, but also constant standards are embedded in there. And so in U S history, you can study the history of immigration in the United States and you can go back, you can look at the definition of white and the fact that in the early 1900s, late 1800s, Irish and Italians were not considered white, but were, uh, basically on the outside and prejudice against them. You can look at Chinese Exclusion Act. You can look at the history, our history with Mexico and how during the Great Depression, we forced American citizens of Mexican origin out of the country and forced them to return to Mexico. So there's all kinds of history links. And then there's all kinds of ELA links also because you're going to be reading all kinds of materials and you're probably going to, it's an easy project to have kids write a persuasive essay at the end, which is, you know, a core skill of writing an argumentative essay in English. And you're going to teach those skills along the way. And now you have kids, this is alternative ed situation. So kids who probably don't love writing, uh, many of them are EL students, so they're probably not strong at writing and they're not motivated to write because why would they? But now they have a purpose and a reason where they're going to write from their heart about something they care about. And she's going to teach them the skills of persuasive writing that are mandated in the curriculum. 
So if we look, their standards are always there. Yes. Thank you. Sorry. I always feel the need to add that because then I've always got teachers being like, well, what your people are saying is all well and good on your podcast, but you know, what about the real school? (laughs) And it's, it's a false dichotomy. It, you can teach content in interesting ways, in meaningful ways to students. It's not an either or. It's a both and. What about another project? I mean, it's hard to top that one, but I'm sure there's also amazing ones out there as well. Sure. Uh, I taught at a project-based learning, wall-to-wall project-based learning school. And we had a lot of freedom as long as we taught the standards. And so one of the projects that I did with some colleagues, we called the Poverty Project. And it was a combination of chemistry. It was a 10th grade class wide project, basically. Chemistry and English in U.S. history. And so for U.S. history, we looked at the Great Depression. And we were asking questions, why are people poor and what can we do about it? And looking historically at the Great Depression, but also current times, we launched a project by having a former homeless family come in and explain what got them into poverty. And it was a major health crisis in their family and how they dealt with it. And we had a community partner, uh, Heartside Ministries, which has daytime shelter and activities for underhoused people in Grand Rapids, where we live. And the chemistry side, they were looking at why do oil and soap don't mix, which of course has everything to do with this, which isn't obvious, but it does. And so they were looking at the the science be- behind uh, why these things don't mix and then looking at soap and emulsifiers and how they break down and all the chemistry of it. I'm not the science teacher, so I can't explain that content very well. But what they ended up doing is the students made their own soap in chemistry class, and then they sold it around at various different places. One girl sold some at the local library. They sold to friends and family. And then they raised money. And when we went to Hearthside, one of the things they have there for the clients that come there is an art studio so they can make art. And our school was able to purchase art from them and hang it up in our school. And it was a way to honor these people and their humanness and not just see them as charity. And one of our students at the end of this project really had a profound answer showing that she understood both the science and and what we were doing. And she said, you know, the underhouse people, they're like oil and the people who have houses are like water. And we are the emulsifiers that are bringing them both together. Oh, that gives me chills. That's amazing. And so kids, they'll, they'll blow you away. They'll amaze you if we just let them. And so many times teachers are more worried about control than they are about actually letting kids get passionate about learning. I spoke early on one of my interviews with with a, a science teacher, um, Louis Mayday Travis, and, and we talked about this idea of, you know, teachers, I think, are sometimes afraid to depress kids or to make them feel bad about themselves or their place in the world, especially if they're teaching privileged kids or to make them feel depressed about the future. And this idea of like offering, yes, an understanding of what's happening in the world, but that piece of critical hope 
where we're not saying, by the way, the world is an awful place, the end, but you're shining a light on something that is awful better society, poverty, but you are providing a place of hope and humanization and a, a guide really for what a better future could look like if more community members engaged in uh, societies like the society that you worked with. Yeah, one of the coolest things about our school is that we we're located at the county level and we bust in students from 20 local districts. And those kids came from urban districts, rural districts, and suburban. And so we really had the gamut of diversity of all different kinds, anything you can think of. We had conservatives and liberals. We had all different kinds of genders and ethnicities and races and political viewpoints. So it was just this wonderful mixing pot. And many of the you know suburban white kids at their homeschools, if we're going to be honest, we're very segregated around here. And so they were exposed to people and ideas that they weren't used to. And it was just a really cool place to teach to have that experience of we're all going to respect each other and learn from each other in our different perspectives. Our students represented the spectrum and we have a lot of visitors. We were a lab school. And most visitors would be like, oh, this is really cool, but you guys are a magnet school. We could never do this. And we would be like, no, we are not a magnet school. Uh, many of our kids who we always had students lead tours, a kid that might blow you away on a tour might be a C and D student in class, not actually in special education and struggling, but you don't know it just because of really the PBL practice. They're very good at public speaking. I mean, this sounds amazing and, you know, gets to the heart of what I think is so important, which is SEL and that that choice and meaningfulness piece with PBL. What are some struggles that you've had using this philosophy? For a new teacher to PBL, you kind of have to gradually release it. So when I started teaching, I was really big on voice and choice and I wanted kids just to do amazing stuff. Well, they were coming from a traditional, they were ninth graders. They'd had eight years of traditional schooling, didn't know how this worked. And so when I threw all this stuff at them at first, they were overwhelmed. And my strongest students, the students who were used to getting A's, came to me begging for structure. And so one of the myths, I think, is that student voice and choice, and this is something I fell prey to, is just is a free-for-all almost and doesn't have structure. But done right and done correctly, PBL does have structure, and you want to guide students and gradually release them to that voice and choice. So, for example, I really like to use the visible thinking routines. Mark Richard has written two books. One of them just came out this year. The newest one is called The Power of Making Thinking Visible, and the other one's Visible Thinking something or other. But they're uh, excellent books of just Here's protocols that can be used K through 12, any subject, to get kids to focus on learning and give them some structure for things like group work and collaboration. So you're not just turning kids loose saying, hey, go do this without any way for them to understand how. So big fan of procedures and routines to organize students' voice and choice. Within that, do you find, like I know that in a traditional teaching environment with a very traditional teacher, you're pulling out the same overheads or the same slides and the same books 
from year to year and there's this comfort in knowing, okay, I know exactly what I'm going to be doing. I mean, obviously in non-COVID times, you know, on February 3rd, 2025, if I'm still teaching the same thing, whereas this, I imagine there's a lot more thinking on your feet and responding to the students. I mean, if I taught the same thing every year, I'd be bored out of my mind. (laughs) It's interesting. And I, for one, love developing curriculum and projects. Like that's, that's not work to me. That's fun. But the other side of it is though, my history standards don't change from year to year. So the crux of what I'm doing is the same, but it's more the packaging. So every year I'm going to teach the civil rights movement and I'm going to teach about Jim Crow and I'm going to teach about the end of slavery. And I'm going to, you know, teach all of those same content standards. But the situation that I choose to launch the project in the entry event is going to be based more on current events. You know, I, I was launching events on things like Trayvon Martin, where today I would be, you know, looking at George Floyd. It's not really that much different. It's just taking whatever is the current issue in that topic. Cause I talk thematically. So the themes kind of don't change. It just might be my poverty project now might be focused more on, you know, COVID-19 is dramatically affecting people in poverty more. I might frame the project looking at it from a COVID-19 perspective instead of just homelessness. But we're still going to be dealing with the Great Depression and the content that I'm teaching. And a lot of we use literature, so a lot of the literature is going to stay the same. It's both comforting and incredibly depressing that these themes that run through history we can always find modern analogs to launch the unit like poverty and discrimination that just doesn't go away. It's not like you're not going to find a current event that illustrates something horrible that we've dealt with in the past. Right. But it's not always negative. I mean, women's rights. One time we did a March madness bracket tournament to see who should replace Andrew Jackson, on the $20 bill. And this is before they had announced uh, Tubman. I think maybe it's a $10 bill that they're supposed to be putting around. I don't know why they haven't done it yet. We heard this was going to happen. So we had the kids look at, you know, they're going to put a a female on money. And we made a tournament and they all picked a famous American woman from history and had to research her and then present. Kind of we had a little debate about which which one should be on there. And we did brackets and, and got down to the end, had fun with it. Um, today, you know, might be looking more at, I mean, this probably, this is kind of done, but we might be looking at when will the first female be president or something, you know, we frame it there. There's positive ways that we can frame things too. It's not always negative. So you kind of mentioned this already about where you get inspiration for new projects other than current events, are there other things that you consistently go to or other people that you consistently look to for inspiration for creating new things? Yeah, I think one of the most overlooked places is your community. So I have a friend, he had a really cool title, he's chief of innovation. And he basically developed a document and a pitch and he would go to local businesses and say, hey, what can my kids do for you? And it was a pitch of, we want to give us a problem and our kids will solve it for you. And one of the problems he got from his community was for a potato farm. 
that wanted to know what their next species of potato they should grow is. And that sounds like a aw shucks kind of project. No, it's a big deal for agriculture. Yeah, and it was it was K through five or six, I think fifth grade, and each grade had a different part of it. And they did all the research, and they figured out which potato they should uh, use next. Well, what I haven't told you yet is this wasn't just a local farmer. This particular organization was based locally, but they controlled farms all up and down the East Coast. So we're talking a huge operation here. And they had a board meeting where they flew in about 60 people from all over. And the fifth grade students got up there and presented which potato they should buy. So this was a major economic decision for this company. And then after the presentation, they voted and unanimously voted what the kids recommended. And that's the potato they're going to buy. And what an experience for those fifth grade kids. Wow. You can't do that project anywhere. It can only be done in this community with this business and those kids. But every community has businesses that have needs like this. You mentioned a little bit about, you know, for new teachers and that gradual release. Do you have any advice that you would give to new teachers, whether they're new to the profession or new to incorporating PBL and SEL into their their classrooms? A lot of this a lot of this depends on your framework and mindset and comfort level. If you're already a teacher who's comfortable letting kids make mistakes and not being in control, then dive in. Let your kids lead the way. Listen to your kids and and let them go. If you're a teacher who this is like foreign territory for you and sounds very scary, I would recommend going to a workshop, getting training, reading books, getting some background on it first, because the worst thing I would hate to see you do is try something and without knowing what you're doing, not do it well, and then go, this is stupid and dumb. It doesn't work. I'm not doing it Uh, because it does work if you are equipped to with how to do it. And if you feel like you're not equipped, then fix that. But if you feel like you are equipped, then dive in. You'll make mistakes. It's okay. I had we had a project uh that we did. We actually did it twice. The first time it was supposed to be choose your own adventure videos. So just like the books where you turn a page and pick which page you want to go to next. The stu- the students were designing those, but on YouTube. So you watch a video clip and at the end, there would be two different links and you would choose which one you wanted to do to go to the next link. And the first time, uh, it was a total student driven project that they came up with and they did a great job organizing it. And I was really excited about it. But then when it came for the follow through, it kind of fell apart and we never finished it. And so the next year we decided to try it again and we were doing it on World War One, World War Two. And this was a whole class project. So I was team teaching. We had about 50 kids per class doing this, all working together. So it was kind of a cluster nightmare organization. And kids got into it and they started doing it. And then, oh, we forgot to download the – we were using these uh, cameras that had these SD cards that had to be downloaded to the computer. Oh, we forgot to download this yesterday. Now it's lost. We had to reshoot it. Oh, so-and-so is absent today. We can't shoot this scene. Oh, so-and-so forgot their costume. And it was just nonstop logistical nightmare problems. And some of the kids' fault, some of it our fault for not organizing it well. And we got to a point where we had to kill the project and say, you know what? We're not going to finish this final product because it would take us another three, four weeks, and we just don't have time to do that. Now, I will say the kids learned the content. We didn't fail on the content because we always make sure 
that they learn the standards they're supposed to. But we had no final product on that one. And that happens. But those same kids at the end of the year completed on their own the best project that uh, I've ever been a part of. So, and one of the students' leaders told me, you know, the reason we succeeded at the end of the year is because we failed at the beginning of the year. We, we learned how to work together. Wow. And I have to know what project it was, if it's the best project you've ever seen. I don't know. I won't say ever seen. I'll just say the best project that I was a part of. So we, this again goes back to our community. In our community of Grand Rapids, it's named after these huge rapids in the river. Well, those rapids disappeared probably 100 years ago with all the dams and such. And there was a couple guys who were sitting at the bar in a napkin and decided, you know what? We need to return the rapids to Grand Rapids. And so they formed an organization and they started getting people involved. And it was to remove and lower the dams to return the river to its natural state. And we realized as teachers, this is going to dramatically change downtown and Grand Rapids more than anything else in decades. And so we started a project. We went, a colleague of mine, we went to a meeting in the summer about this. And we tried to network with all the city people to get some community support for this. And we pretty much failed. And we got to the end of the year and we're like, all right, we're going to do this project, 10th grade, whole team project. Should we do it or not? We have no audience. We have no real purpose for it. All right, we'll just do it. So we just launched it. We didn't tell the kids that we didn't really have anywhere to go with it. But we got them excited and divided into teams. So I was in charge of the team that was kind of like the social we, we did the marketing and we did the kind of polls. And so one of the first things we did is went and walked about a mile of the river downtown. And there was a design team and then there was more of a science team, ecological team. And my team had created a survey to ask what people wanted done to the river. Now, our school pretty much was a morning school. So we were down there pretty early and there just weren't a lot of people out. We got back and we had maybe a dozen survey responses. And one of my students said to me, hey, can I put this on social media? And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Didn't really think anything of it. The next day we had like 200 responses because she contacted the local news and they put it on their Facebook page. By the end of the week, we had over 800 responses. And so now we had real data and we had people excited about it. And the kids built this. uh, We built out a cardboard on three sheets of plywood. So it was about four feet by 25 foot long model of downtown Grand Rapids of everything that's there and everything they wanted to change. And we, the kids organized, they, they started a social media team. Everyone, all the leaders kind of picked themselves by just stepping forward. And she started a social media campaign and they started putting it out there and we had a showcase and we had the Michigan DEQ showed up. We had a local uh, water rights watershed organization show up that we developed a partnership with for years after that we had the one of the co-founders of grand rapids whitewater who started everything showed up himself which the kids were super psyched about we had the mayor not the mayor the um the president of the local grand rapids museum show up and a couple he had someone working under him that came who ended up offering a paid internship to one of my students to lead a similar project in the summer and all of these people, I asked them, how do you hear about this? And basically, they're like, oh, I just got an email from someone. So basically, the kids created a viral campaign to get all these people to show up where they couldn't even say how they were connected to the project. And this was all in two weeks. What? <laughs> two weeks, all day long, 
kids did all this at the end of the year. I love the, like, if you build it, they will come mentality too. Like you didn't know at the beginning where it was going to go, but once you had the momentum, people started paying attention, which I, I think is amazing and a really good reminder to teachers that like, yes, we should always design with the end in mind, but sometimes what comes at the end of a project will surprise even you. Well, yeah, and there's something to be said for having your students ask rather than you asking. Uh, when you ask an adult to help out on something, it's easier for them to say no than when a kid calls up and says, hey, we're doing this project. Do you want to be a part of it? Well, adults are more likely to say yes to a student-driven initiative like that. So let, you know, give kids that experience. One of my, one of my favorite moments in the project, I had a student teacher at the time and the different teams were not communicating well and getting along. So the leaders called a meeting, self-appointed leaders again, and they called a meeting. So they go, we had a common space and get ready to start having this meeting. My student teacher and I show up to listen and Ben, one of the student leaders, turns and looks at me and says, you don't have to be here. We got this. We don't need you. I'm like, awesome. And they did. You know, they figured it out. Oh, that's lovely. So have the Rapids returned to, to Grand Rapids? It's It hasn't officially happened. There's been steps. There was a endangered snail that they had to relocate. Uh, but when Obama was president, there was over $30 million dollars in federal funding designated for it. So it is going to happen. It's in process, but it's one of those things that takes a long time to happen. So it, it will happen. It hasn't parts, pieces of it have started to happen, but the major stuff hasn't happened yet. And the cool thing is a lot of the ideas that they are implementing things like putting in a, a wave kind of pool for river surfing, like some of these were ideas that my students had are being implemented. So it's pretty cool. Not saying they got them from my students, but they're at least parallel to what my students thought. And so then my last question and my favorite question is you've been given unlimited funds, unlimited time, unlimited control. What does your ideal school or curriculum or district or however you want to interpret it, what does it look like? Well, of course it would be a PBL school, but I think... I just think of like the first day of school and I think of the first day of school is like a, I don't know, almost like a trade show where you go in and there's all these booths, except booth, instead of booths, maybe it's just teacher's room. And the first day kids come to school, every teacher is pitching a project to them of their passion project that that teacher wants to teach. And then kids go around and they experience all these different pitches and all these ideas and kids figure out where they want to go. And it's a, every kid has an IEP and that IEP is their plan on how they're going to meet the standards. And it involves things like internships out in the community. And there's personalized projects that maybe just they're doing. Uh, there's a school that does a lot of this called big out in Iowa and it's personalized projects. And so every kid would have a mixture of, Here's my own personalized project that I'm doing, maybe with a small group of kids or by myself that no one else is doing. And then some teacher-driven projects that they would choose from the carnival of at the beginning of the year. And 
you know, some other whatever supplemental they need to meet the standards. But every kid would just kind of be learning at their own pace, in their own way, in their own passions. And there would be no standardized testing, zero. There would be portfolios and there would be mandatory working with the community. And kids would solve real problems and do amazing work. And everybody would want to go there. And everybody in the community would want to be a part of it because they'd see value in it. Sign me up to teach at that school. That sounds amazing. <laughs> um, Mike, thank you so much for being willing to to share your experience and the experiences of others and your students. I think this will be really inspirational for, for listeners who maybe will take on some bigger projects than they've done before or even just think about dipping their toe into this kind of work. If they want to find out more about you or contact you, is there a way that they can do that? Yes, I'm at Mike Cackley on Twitter. I also blog, try to blog weekly at michaelcackley.com about the intersection of SEL and PBL. And then I also have a Facebook page where I post a daily resource, and that's SEL in PBL. Awesome. Well, thank you again. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. It's fun talking. This episode will not self-destruct in five seconds, but will remain available on your preferred podcasting platform. Lesson Impossible is proud to be one of the many amazing school rubric podcasts. Links to resources or people we mentioned and information in general about the podcast can be found at lessonimpossible.com. If you enjoy the podcast, you can help other listeners discover it by rating and reviewing on iTunes forwarding it to a colleague, or posting a link in your favorite educational chat. This has been Less Than Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin.